Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Raphael Baer about the Lib Dems. Caroline Crampton and Raph and I will be talking about Promenade Theatre and Alex Hearn will be back for one week only to talk to Hayley Campbell about cycling. by our political editor Raphael Baer and the editor of The Staggers, George Eaton, to talk about the Lib Dems. Uh, fill my enthusiasm. No, I am genuinely quite interested because we've got two pieces in the magazine this week, two interviews, one with party president Tim Farron and one with Jeremy Brown, who's in the Home Office, saying two contradictory things about what they feel about Labour. So first of all, George, will deal with Tim Farron. He is, he loves Ed Miliband. He can't get enough of him. Yes, yeah, so I saw him last week and we were discussing Syria and in the course of that he made some criticisms of Miliband's position but then said, but I really like Ed Miliband, I don't want to diss him, I don't want to join him with the Tories who compare him to Kinnock. So I was slightly struck by that and said, well, what do you really like about Ed Miliband? And expected him at that point to, to be quiet and start saying some nice things about Nick Clegg. Instead, he launched into this great paean of praise The Miliband, said he's a great pluralist, he's greener than most Labour leaders, he's more internationalist, and then went on and said, and there's some other things too. Um, he came out for AV, he had the backbone to do that, but he wouldn't share a platform with uh, Nick, so he, had, so he ended up with me. And that kind of shows the, the unique structure of the Lib Dems, right? So they have this president who's seen to kind of embody more of a kind of grassroots feeling. So that's he feels licensed by that, right, to, to talk about the Labour Party in those terms. Absolutely. And as a non-minister, of course, he's also not bound by collective responsibility, which means he can still speak out on tuition fees. So he said to me, you know, my personal view is I'd like them to be abolished and replaced with some kind of formal graduate tax. He says, I want us to put the 50p tax rate in our manifesto. Festo, and he was clearly searching for common ground with uh, Labour and Miliband. So on coalitions, his formal line is, well, the electorate will decide which party is the largest, but you can tell he'd, he'd be a lot happier if he was in uh, government with Miliband after the next section than, uh, than with the Tories. And Ralph, Jeremy Brown, on the other said hand... Said more or less the exact opposite. Uh, I mean, as, as George points out, the, the difference is Jeremy Brown is a minister. Um, the difference is he's also very much of the what we call the orange book kind of classical liberal essentially the center right of the lib dems um but what he said is i'd say almost the opposite he he said uh, the the sort of the global race narrative which is david cameron's big theme about well the economic challenges facing the country is the most important conversation that politics needs to have at the moment and about the challenges facing britain um, Ed Miliband is nowhere in that conversation. Uh, he 
is running on empty. There's a leadership void. He has no idea. Intellectually lazy. Intellectually lazy. He has no idea what what Labour stand for. Um, and, and obviously, he's going to attack the opposition and he's in government. And I think partly that will be a strategic choice and partly a visceral one. I mean, if you are the government and the opposition are attacking you all the time, you get quite tribal about and quite protective about what you're doing. I do think, though, there is a structural issue here, which is that, and I've, I've written my column about this this week as well, that there are people close to Clegg, who are the, the, sort of the most Cleggite Lib Dems, find it very hard to disguise their bias in favour of renewing a working relationship with Cameron after the next election. They've sort of, they've, they've found a way of doing business. The the rosy, happy glow, the sort of honeymoon days are long gone, but also some of the real bitterness around the AV campaign, around House of Lords reform, that's sort of, um, sort of faded as well. And now they've got into this very functional, business-like way of doing things. And they find it very hard to imagine having that equivalent relationship with Ed Miliband. So there's a gap between essentially the sort of the, the hardcore Cleggites who are in government and think, frankly, the next election is going to be change or more of the same. More of the same will probably win it. Um, and could we actually get a coalition 2.0, or I think we might be on 3.0 by now. Um, whereas the mood in the grassroots party that Tim Farron will be channeling very effectively is actually, Christ, if we sign up for the Tories with the Tories again, that basically makes us Tories for the sake of the independence of the party and our identity, even if we're not you know, fully paid up members of the Labour Party, which we never would be. We've got to show that it's sort of their turn to have a ride on the <laughs> 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 probably slightly the wrong metaphor, um, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but George, that's really difficult, isn't it? Because the electoral maths at the moment suggests that if things carry on as they are, Labour will be the largest party in a hung parliament, at which point that becomes very difficult for the Lib Dems to say, yeah, we know you're the largest party, but actually we kind of like the other guys. Absolutely. And this is why I think Farron made this intervention and uh, he, he will have known how it would be written up, it was, it was no accident. The fear among the left of the party, among most Lib Dems, is that the, the manifesto will be written as if with a second Lib Dem Tory coalition in mind. So he talks about, in your interview, about putting in stuff that they know that the Tories won't yes. wear, because you want to at least have some bargaining chips where we say, well, we'll give up this, but you have to give yeah. up this, rather than... To be honest, I also I wouldn't rule out the, the possibility that the Lib Dems are thinking... They recognise that there will be tremendous pressure on Ed Miliband to go it alone if he's even close to a majority. That it's just, they're not wrong that it would just be practically, it will be quite hard to negotiate a coalition with Labour. I mean, I was talking to a, someone, a Labour person who was saying, you know, can you just imagine trying to get Ed Balls and Danny Alexander in a room together to agree an economic strategy? The, the pr- it will be so, the mood, the poison in the relations between them is so strong. Obviously, you'd say, well, you know, the maths will decide it and the Lib Dems will say, look, when it comes to and it... it's quite unlikely that Danny Alexander Danny, will be back in the... But the equivalent sort of conversation where you've got Lib Dems coming in and trying to patronise Labour people about how government and coalition works, you can see how... The and you know Ed, unless Ed Miliband's position gets substantially stronger in his own party and in the country over the next twenty months, there will be quite a lot of pressure on him to say no. We'll form a government, and we've got lots of people here who would like to give ministerial jobs to. And frankly, Lib Dems, if you really believe in some of this stuff, you can vote for it anyway. They will have watched 
the problems that David Cameron has had alienating a lot of his party uh, when he didn't already have that much authority in it to begin with by handing out plum ministerial jobs to the what they notorious call the yellow peril. Edmund Band, if he is in a position to form a government, even without the majority, I think he will come under a lot of pressure to try and go it alone. And can we talk a little bit about what the likely outcome is for the Lib Dems in, in the election in 2015? So you mentioned Tim Farron has a you know, bulletproof majority. Mm. Jeremy Brown, less so. Yeah, I mean, that constituency is one of the interesting ones, one of the many ones where it's the sort of um, it's coalition on coalition. Um, and I suspect he might be helped a lot by UKIP taking votes off the Tories. Um, but also, crucially, the thing that the Lib Dems are feeling a bit more confident about now is that tactical voting will prevail. Although there are obviously a lot of people who voted Lib Dem in 2010 who just spit when they hear the name Clegg and could never ever bring themselves to vote Lib Dem ever again. There are also quite a lot of people who actually, when it comes down to it, will be persuaded if in a constituency it's a choice between Lib Dems and the Tories, they will vote Lib Dem to stop the Tories from getting majority. But also this idea that you talk about in your column of this sort of take the edge off kind of yeah. principle. So that, 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 that there the are a lot of people dog, for whom either a Labour government or a Tory government is not that attractive without some leavening that they think that the Lib Dems could bring. Yeah, or well, certainly the, the, what, the Lib Dems, when they do their private polling, they, don't, they discard all the people who say we just hate the Lib Dems. So they, they're, they're only working in the pool of people who would at least consider voting Lib Dem. And what they find with those people is that the main obstacle is for, you know, half of them fearing that you'll let David Cameron in and the other half fearing that you'll let Ed Miliband in. And that's obviously a very negative thing. And what they want to try and do is turn that into a positive and say, well, look, you can't... You don't feel comfortable with a majority Tory government, but you've got to admit, Tories you know, softened by you know, with a sort of fabric softener Clegg in isn't actually so bad. Likewise, you don't really know what an Ed Miliband government would give you, maybe a bit suspicious of it, but you know basically what Lib Dems stand for and you know that we can deliver it in government, so at least keep us in the mix. Um, that's It's a bit ambitious because it's not something you can put famous, you know, on a pledge card on the doorstep, but it's, a, it's certainly an improvement on the kind of it's not a wasted vote, honest. And they could, they, it's feasible they could find a strategy that actually addresses that famous kind of wasted vote challenge, which has always held that back the third party. And my final question is, where is Vince Cable in all of this? Vince's star has rather waned compared to last year. Um, I think he's been uh, thrown off, off foot partly by the economic recovery uh, I think if if you had seen a uh, triple dip recession, if you had seen uh, if the double dip hadn't been revised away, then I think Cable's call for a sort of a plan A plus or even a plan B would have taken off. Um, he would have been able to say, look, we should be investing far more in capital spending, not just cutting less. Um, of course, now the numbers are moving in the right direction for Osborne. And I think also people do recognise that you know, Cable is probably too old to to. You know, really take the, the Lib Dems much beyond 2015. I think he could have been a caretaker leader had Clegg been displaced. But, I mean, Clegg's bacon has really been saved by Eastleigh, I, I feel. I think that was the, mm. the big turning that point. Because that showed, that yeah, in the worst po- possible circumstances. So you had the uh, allegations against Chris Renard of, yeah. of abuse against Lib Dem women. You had Chris Hune and the speeding points row. You had the Lib Dems trading UKIP in most polls. And yet they held that seat quite convincingly. And that persuaded them... Yes, we may barely poll above 10% in 2015, but if we can hang on, if we can dig in our heartlands, then we could actually end up keeping most of our most of our seats. 
And the irony there is, of course, they're going to benefit from the first-past-the-post system that they tried to get rid of back in 2011. Oh, and on that happy note, I will leave it. Thank you, George and Ralph. I'm here with Hayley Campbell, who wrote about cycling and her experiences being a cyclist in London over the last two years for our Transport Week on the New Statesman website. Hayley, how, how did the first year go? The first year, well, I got a, um, first of all, I bought a bike off eBay from a man called Genghis, which was, which was probably my first bad move. And I had to go to Oxford to get it. And then I rode through Oxford, which is a city I've never been to, on a bike that was, in hindsight, very broken. And then I, the next day, I just dove straight into cycling in London. Lasted, how many? It was three months before something pretty fundamental uh, snapped off the front of my bike. It was the brake. Um, <laughs> the brake was attached by a screw. And um, I learned now you have to like tighten bolts and, and, and stuff like that. But you know, I was a moron. I bought a bike off a guy called Genghis. So it snapped off and jammed in the spokes. And I flew over the handlebars and landed right on my face. And the fact that there were no other bruises on my body says that I didn't even try to, <laughs> to stop my fall or save my face. And um, so that was my first, oh, that was my first year. I fell out of love with my bike. I lost a lot of money. I How know. long did it take you to start cycling again? Um, three months. I was three months of pretty much, I didn't have any spare time because I was living at the dentist. He was a German dentist. Uh, looked like a little gnome. Um, used to sing along to the, the radio while he was putting metal things in my mouth. And um, so I've got a row of teeth and uh, my top teeth are essentially dead. So he's, he's screwed them back in and painted them white. Before this, I'd never had a filling in my whole life. So, and, and I come from Australia. Do you now just so wish you'd eaten more sweets? I do, I do. Apparently in, in A&E, I don't remember this because I had a major concussion because I landed on my face. <laughs> Um, apparently in A&E, uh, everybody was trying to see to my brain and make sure I wasn't going to die. But the only thing I was really concerned about was, are my teeth okay? And the nurse really didn't care about my teeth. She just kept saying, we'll, we'll get them, we'll get them sorted out. First, we've got to see to your lip. You're bleeding from the face. You are, <laughs> you, you, you are basically a graze. So we need to, we need to stop you bleeding. We need to get you a, a scan. And I just kept saying, no, 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 you don't understand. These aren't British teeth. <laughs> and she, she really didn't like that. And if you're offensive to nurses and their teeth, they make you wait. And if you're waiting. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com after having just fallen on your face. 
That's not great. It's not great, but you also don't notice. So I didn't know I was in there for six hours. That was fine. But despite this, you know, you've been cycling for a couple of years now. Um, that's why we got we got Haley to write her her tips on not dying in London. I'm um, not dead which so a lot of people were attacking this piece because it was too gloomy, and I think Haley Haley mentions sort of as a as a cautionary example her accident, but I feel. Making that clearer might have explained to people why you're starting from a back foot when you're explaining why you like cycling. Well, I love cycling despite all these 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 things that have happened to me. Like when I when I got rid of my Genghis bike and I I bought another bike, I went, I'm not going to buy a shitty broken one. I'm going to get a proper one. That one was stolen two months after I bought it. So even though all these bad things, I I found it again. The police found okay. it on the back of a truck, which is highly unlikely. <laughs> Um, and I got to go to the police office, police station, and give a statement and all of that stuff. Pick your bike from a lineup. Pick my bike up from a lineup. That's right. Um, which never happens. But despite all these bad things, I still really love cycling around London. And I said that at the end of the piece. That that was my yeah. like. You know how BuzzFeed does the this is bad, 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 and then at the end it goes yes, but look kittens. At the end of my piece, I did a yes, but you can. Get across London in five minutes. You know, you today I took two trains to get here. <laughs> this, I, was, this was my advice to Haley as to how to get to the office. I wondered why you didn't cycle. Because uh, it's pissing down raining and I'm a <laughs> pussy. So I took two trains to get here from Soho. And I could have cycled it in about seven minutes, I reckon. Because cycling is brilliant. But you, you, have, you cycle knowing about all these other bad things. Mm. The comments I got under the piece were hilarious. My favorite one was the person who said that me likening the danger of an HDV to a big billowing skirt was a ludicrous statement. Which is sort of, yes. Of course it's a ludicrous yes. statement. That is like an old, old-timey, funny thing. <laughs> Compare a bad thing to a less bad thing. And say they're the same. The juxtaposition creates humor. No, your readers don't think so. <laughs> I, I, well, this is, this is what I was going to say. Like, you like cycling. What do you think about cyclists? I don't like other cyclists. I'm a, I think it's possible to be a cyclist mm -hmm. and not be a C-word. <laughs> I, I think a it's bicyclist possible, maybe. A bicyclist. I think it's possible to to do that, and I know because I can do it. I don't mm -hmm. jump red lights. I don't go on the pavement. I don't. Um, I don't run into pedestrians, except except the people with the wheelie suitcases. Except the people with the wheelie suitcases. There was. I watched a video last night of a guy in New York City who um, he got a fifty fifty dollar fine for cycling not. In the bicycle lane mm -hmm. and so to prove to the the police that cycling in the bicycle lane is not actually always the safest thing he's just got this three minute video of him cycling along ramming into all of the things that get piped parked in <laughs> i the have seen lane. that video it you know bins um yeah. scaffolding a police car it was brilliant and um so there's that, but also in the cycle lane, you get people because they see it as an extension of the footpath. Mm -hmm. They don't see it as a real road. And I did that too as a pedestrian. I have been hit by cyclists in the past, but I backed up off the street and gone, I'm an idiot. Yeah, I just that's... stepped into the cycle lane. I'm well aware of what I've done. Um, so I think there's a self-awareness thing that you need to have as, as a cyclist and as a pedestrian. Those people are 
Do you feel do you feel part of the cyclist group dynamic when you're when you're going into work and you're waiting with all of the other cyclists at the beginning you know, before the red lights? Do you look around and think these are my people? Um, sometimes there was I almost got smashed by a big HTV. Mm-hmm. Almost as bad as a billowing skirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was around the, the time you asked me to write the article. Like that morning, I had almost died. So in my head, it was I wanted to do. A list of things you could do to okay. not die. Um, there we go. It wasn't just the NS trying to troll cyclists. No, although... it wasn't. It was in my head. I was like, how have I got away with it for so long? This morning, I almost died. And um, when I swerved out of the way of this big, big, scary truck, which, you know, those wheels are massive. I'm six foot one, and those wheels scared the shit out of me. Um, a bunch of cyclists, just at the lights, you know, nobody did anything. I swerved out of the way, kept going along the bike path. And then at the lights, somebody touched me on the shoulder, a cyclist from behind. She said, are you okay? Like emotionally speaking, are you okay? And I went, no, not really. She said, I didn't think you'd be. <laughs> so you cycle along and you're kind of loathing other cyclists because they're getting in the way. But in the end, you know, we're all trying not to die. And that BuzzFeedy I love kittens moment is a good place to end. Thank you, Hayley, for coming <laughs> in. Welcome to a segment we like to call Raph got a babysitter and went to the theatre. Um, so I'm joined by Raph and Caroline to talk about... You went to see Punch Drunk's The Drowned Man, which is a promenade theatre performance set in an enormous warehouse off Paddington that's been... Well, it's kind of quite the she-she thing to go and see. I, I think it probably was quite a she-she thing to go and see when it first came out, but because I'm in sort of that midlife crisis age and I didn't get the invitation to the premiere, I saw it about two months after everyone else um, and thoroughly enjoyed it and found it immensely stimulating. Was it the first kind of... Because Punch Drunk had become very famous for these kind of pro- beautifully staged, told in fragments, you sort of wander and come across a sort of fawn in a glen and then they have a massive knife fight and you move on to someone else looking at their reflection in a yeah, pool. Yeah, it was the first time I've wrestled a fawn in a glen <laughs> ever. <laughs> uh, I'm very aware of the phenomenon, have seen uh, promenade theatre and, and that sort of immersion theatre experience but not actual punch drunk um, and this is the one that's had the most mixed reviews mm. I subsequently discovered um, because it is very grand and very ambitious and uh, some would say that Punch Drunk have entered their decadent phase now and it's not quite as tight and as gripping as some of their other um, experience slash performances. Yeah, so been. I was joined by my friend who absolutely loves Punch Drunk and had been to Mask of the Red Death, which is the Edgar Allan Poe one with these massive sort of cloaks and wander around. I didn't get to go and see the Doctor Who one, which would have been amazing, called The Crash of the Elysium. But, you know, that's a private sadness. <laughs> um, and I'd, 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 I really thought this was just... I, I, as I get increasingly older, I kind of want them. I want the, the other Don't people you to do the dare work. Refer to yourself as old. <laughs> I'm, I'm thirty this month, but you know, so it's you know creeping up on me. But I increasingly, I, I feel like what's creeping up? You have to like Logan's run. It's <laughs> the end now. It's gonna, someone's gonna come say, right, thank you. You've had your youth. Now off you go. Drink some soil and green. And yeah, I think that. No, I genuinely think that's going to happen. But uh, I was, I was, I, I, I didn't like it. And not only because I went in August when it was hotter than hell in that warehouse, but. Um, I just felt that there was too much kind of work done, having to be done by you. And it, the experience was too... I mean, this is what people always say about computer games, right? They can never be art because there's no directed experience. There's no authorial control. Yes, that's very interesting. I, see, I felt actually the exact opposite. First of all, I think um, I was happy to surrender control. I think I would have enjoyed it less if I had been 
chasing the actors around going oh look, there goes someone who's not wearing a mask they must be an actor if i follow them into that room there might be a scene i might be able to understand what the hell's going on here actually i was quite happy to just sort of roam around and see what what came my way and it then turns out maybe by coincidence or maybe because that's actually the right strategy comparing it to other people who have seen it and who i'd been to see it with i got quite lucky in firsthand seeing some really great scenes some really great acting some very gripping theatre at close quarters with not very many other people in the room and in one case only me in the room and one very intense actor being very intense right in my face which was actually um, that sounds more intimate than I meant to be. <laughs> but, um, but it was quite intimate well, and, I think and certain people you know, enjoy it more than other people so I had a guy who was wandering around in the very sandy bit and he made me follow him to his little tent and all these people were watching us and then he made me give him a sponge bath and I just felt I just felt so unbelievable I was a full bloody clench essentially is what I was in so I think you have to be the kind of person that yeah, you see, I I, didn't, I had similarly, I would, a, a mysterious lady essentially led me into a room and locked the door <laughs> and then applied makeup to me while speaking to me in a slightly, you know, half enamoured, half paranoid way. Are you sure she was way. an actor? <laughs> I mean, in fairness, that does happen That's to me quite often. Mean, and on this occasion, I'd paid. But um, uh, though it was, uh, you know, uh, let, let, we edit that bit out of the of the podcast. Um, but it, I enjoyed it. I, I was happy to surrender the control and... Um, for, I think if you're less so, and that's not meant to be a criticism, I think some people are just less happy to surrender control. I definitely am. It's more problematic. Um, Caroline, you used to be talking about Shakespeare and promenade. Yeah, so I actually had an experience in Edinburgh once where it wasn't just the audience that forgot what was happening and that it was a play. Actually, people surrounding. So it was a performance of Romeo and Juliet by a company called Belt Up. I thought you were going to say the actors forgot. Well, you wonder, actually. But uh, anyway, so it was done through the streets of Edinburgh. They sort of arrived in a place. We had no idea what was going to happen. They just started declaiming the prologue. They said, follow us. Off you go. We were on the Royal Mile. We got to the bit where Mercutio and Tybalt have their duel. And one of the, <laughs> one of the actors smacked the other one up against a glass window of a shop. The police ran over and tried to break it up because they thought it was a real fight. Um, so the play was momentarily paused while everyone had to stop and say, actually, sorry, this is drama. Um, can <laughs> we, most Edinburgh can, thing. Can we heard. carry on? And the police kind of went, oh, sorry, sorry, are you sure? Sorry, he's quite bruised. Are you sure? um, and off it went. But that was... And to start with, because you're so in this kind of, is it immersive theatre, is it not? You tell them, are they real policemen, are they not? It was the point at which one of them got out a taser that you think, okay, actually not. Um... But that was completely... I'd love to see that in reverse. I'd love to basically go to Stratford, see a completely conventional production of Romeo and Juliet, and then just someone comes on stage and tasers <laughs> 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 yeah, That's enough for that, right? But, but obviously, here, move along now. I, I, yeah, I, my problem with it is I think that often the kind of artistry overtakes the delivery of what's what's going on. I went to see something that was a kind of interactive play at the Menia Chocolate Factory, um, which started with us in Tate Modern, and a guy kind of beckoned us over, and there was a group about 12 of us, and sort of told us something about a diamond heist. Anyway, eventually it turned into a lovely treasure hunt where they stopped you at several places on the way and gave you a pint of beer so it wasn't a, it wasn't a bad day out but it wasn't particularly compelling narrative yeah, I th- and i think there is a danger that um everyone is so enamored with the new form uh, that there is not enough editing goes on and, that that you, week and, then you, and, and you think well this is i'm supposed to be impressed by this structural innovation i don't need to worry too much about the play i had this experience with uh, uh, an event it was almost exactly a year ago I think maybe a couple of years ago uh, around the anniversary of 9-11 mm. um, where the, you go through sort of airport security and then you go up in a lift and and the the play takes place as if in the restaurant at the top of the Twin Towers I can't remember which tower it was and then it's about an experience and exploring various different characters involved in um, 
September 11th terror attacks. Um, and I know this isn't something theatre critics are allowed to say, but I'm also a theatre critic, so I'm going to say it was way too long. It was brilliant for a bit, <laughs> and then it's just, you thought, okay, you know what? Someone needed to come along and say, you've had a good idea, you don't need to put it all in, you can take some of it out. And we're journalists, and that's what we do all the time, so we have that prejudice. But guess what, theatre people? It's good advice sometimes. No, and Even I, Shakespeare gets cut. Well, yeah, and, did, and one of the best plays that I've seen this year was Francis Barber uh, and Chris Jumbo in the all-female production of Julius Caesar at the Donmar Warehouse, which was a, a sprightly hour and a half long. Yeah, Julius and Caesar I, could really use yeah. a cut. Use and a cut. I, I mean, the second half of Julius the Caesar of, just does go on a bit, let's you know, face kind it. Of, they, were just, they were really whipping through it, and I read and frankly, a Frankly, the second half of Romeo and Juliet could use a bit of uh, the old scissors, but... I, I think all the funny bits could come out of the tragedies. <laughs> yes, and just I'd agree. Gonna... Those the kind of light relief scenes that Shakespeare only really wrote so that they could move things a, around behind. Yeah, put a dog in so it. So the yeah. Raph's become, Raph gets a babysitter segment has now become the Philistine <laughs> segment. <laughs> <laughs> and why are they speaking that funny language? Why don't they just do it in English? Right, anyway. I, I, I'm un-Philistine. I've seen several plays this year that I really like. There was Peter and Alice, which was Ben Whishaw and yeah. Judy Dench. Again, it was an hour and a half long. That was that, that's all I require. It's time in bed by nine thirty. Exactly, weird. with my cup of cocoa. <laughs> and on that intensely philistine note, this is the worst culture section that anyone has ever hosted. Thank you to Raph and Caroline. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, Raphael Bear, George Eaton, Caroline Crampton, Haley Campbell, Alex Hearn. It was produced by Phil Morn. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast.